News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, here with co-host Christina Greer and executive producer Alex Brooklyn. We're joined this week by Jacob Kornbluth, the national politics reporter for Jewish Insider, whose excellent reporting on public health inside of New York's Orthodox Jewish community has roused the ire of elements within that community, and then by Esther Fuchs, a professor of international and public affairs and political science at Columbia University, and the director of the university's urban and social policy program for an in-depth conversation about New York's budget crises past and present. We've got lots to get into, so let's jump right in. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for joining us this morning on Wednesday, October 21st, is it? You have been covering national politics for Jewish Insider for quite some time. Now, recently, the focus has been on New York. You've been showing up at the City Hall news briefings, and you were covering quite extensively the outbreaks among the ultra-Orthodox community in Borough Park, and of course, most recently, the mini-pauses that were imposed on certain zip codes. Can you tell us a little bit about your ordeal and what had happened in the community in regard to your reporting to kind of bring it all to a head? So it's kind of a long story, but I try to make it short. Back in March, during the outbreak, it took about two weeks or so for the Orthodox Jewish community to actually be aware of the situation and get adapted to the new uh, restrictions and guidelines. But, you know, once the numbers came in and it showed that a lot of members of the community were sick and the numbers were devastating, people went into a state of shock, but also voluntarily uh, community leaders and rabbis came together and announced that they are closing down the synagogues. It took about a few weeks until the numbers went dramatically down when the reopening uh, process started. That is when things got lax. People started resuming, you know, services, weddings, opening small businesses and schools. But it was that time in April when I saw reports coming in to my phone from WhatsApp groups of 20 or 30 funerals a day from members in the community, some relatives, friends, people who I knew. And to me, it was very frustrating that one, the government is not doing enough to bring awareness to the issue, but also try and deal with a complex issue because It's a community that is very hard to adapt to a situation where you're not actually going uh, to synagogue, you're not practicing. Even the fact that the governor gave out an executive order on masks, that they will find those who are not wearing masks, it was given out during a holiday when people were not even aware that the executive order has been imposed on us. And there was no outreach But what I was confused was that the mayor at the time had said that we will aggressively enforce our orders. We will aggressively enforce the restrictions. And again, it was done on a voluntary basis, but also upon the order of the city and state to prohibit services. Uh, And so when I saw social distancing violations, All I did was challenging the mayor about the enforcement process. Unfortunately, people took it differently. And since then, I've been called a snitch, an informer, because I presumably informed government about certain violations within the community. But during the summer months, when the infection rate was relatively low, uh, people were resuming normal life. Some were arguing there's herd immunity. Others were saying, you know, coronavirus just moved on. It passed New York. And when the positivity rate actually started ticking up, it took the city a month 
from August 1st till Labor Day to actually alarm the community about the uptick in cases. But it was then when they announced that, that people, when again, when I reported the data, brought awareness to the issue, that people were reminded who is talking, look at this person. He is the one who informed Mayor de Blasio about what's happening in the community, and therefore he's responsible for the crackdown. Well, I mean, Mayor de Blasio has a bit of a pattern. Uh, You don't hear about an issue for a long time, and then all of a sudden there's like a very hurried response, in my experience, from, you know, watching him. (laughs) But so there was like a desire to get back to normal. And you had told Brian Lair that a lot of times you were advocating for mask wearing and just like following the data and following science. But what do people not really understand about the the urgent desire to kind of get life back to normal in the communities and to like open stores and to want to do that? Why was it such a an urgent thing? And when the uptick happened, mm-hmm. there was a lot of response from the city, arguably some people who were protesting on the steps of New York Public Library were showing pictures of, say, Wall Street bars, uh, Greenwich Village, East Village, and saying, how is this different than what we're doing? And why is the Jewish community being singled out? And do you think there was like enough interaction between not just Jewish community leaders, but also the council members from Borough Park, Councilman Yeager, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It didn't seem that they were very much involved in enforcement or education. So what was your experience with all of that? I think that the city failed in reaching out to the community, in educating the community about the guidelines when things were coming down, when the infection rate was actually very low. Uh, it is then when the city has to make sure that, number one, that you're bringing awareness to how severe this issue is, and it hasn't moved on despite the low infection rate. And number two, prepare for a situation where there's actually an uptick in cases. So, for instance, if you would encourage mass testing when the infection rate is low, you would actually get an accurate positivity rate if there's an uptick. But what happened was there was an uptick in cases and a sample of about 150, 200 cases. And suddenly the city comes in, doesn't do any outreach uh, using the language of the community, using influencers within the community, reaching out to members of the community about the issue. The first thing they do is put out a press release Two reporters, which is fine because I'm a reporter. I want to get that data, but that is not the prime medium of getting the message out to the community if your objective is defeating the virus. And so people were frustrated that, number one, they were singled out by the governor and by the mayor as Orthodox Jews are responsible for this uptick in certain neighborhoods. And number two, where's the city in all of this? Where's the state in all of this? When you try to encourage people to wear masks, okay, and you distribute 10,000 masks to a population of over 150,000 people, you're not really looking for people to wear masks. You just want to check the box. And that is why people saw that the city and state are not really looking out to um, lower the infection rate, but actually to crack down on the community because of several issues. Some were saying that Governor Cuomo came out with a new book about the success of his coronavirus crackdown. And suddenly you see an uptick in cases. Some saw the mayor as just being led by certain data numbers but also holding a double standard when it comes to protests. So all of that combined brought to a point where people were frustrated, were not given the right information, and the guidance out there was not given as if do everything to bring down the infection rate, but only you're responsible for the uptick, get your act together. If you don't get your act together within days, 
will shut you down. We're going to red zone you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to go back to that double standard thing for a second. Both Mayor de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo said that the Black Lives Matter protests were outside of the broader public health guidance. Those Mm -hmm. protests have mostly been outside and most people have been wearing masks. But de Blasio in particular said this is because of their historic and morally significant nature that the uh, health rules didn't apply. Later, de Blasio came personally to uh, oversee the NYPD breaking up an event in Borough Park. And I know that that upset people. I know Cuomo's had his own issues there, but I'm hoping you can talk about how this standard is being perceived within the uh, observant Jewish community, where I know I've seen people with Jewish Lives Matter Mm -hmm. slogans, and there seems to be some sort of frustration. And then extending out from there, because we only have not enough time here as ever, I'm hoping you can speak a little to what it is that the uh, secular city, broadly speaking, may not understand about how this fight is being perceived within the uh, observant Orthodox world. So I think there are two issues here. Um, Number one, again, without going into too much details about the Black Lives Matter protests. Obviously, it was outdoor. Obviously, people were wearing masks. Here and there, you saw people not really uh, practicing social distancing. But what frustrates people is that you could have come up with practical solutions to actually apply those standards to religious services as well. Uh, Some council members came up with an idea of street closures, closing down uh, certain streets with large congregations where the congregation could hold outdoor services. That was not done. That was not. Was that plan denied by the city? No, it wasn't denied, but it just wasn't implemented. And people were not encouraged to do that. You know, when the city comes out and, and sends out the link, hey, you can apply for a permit if you choose to hold outdoor services. That's insufficient. I mean, you should encourage people to hold outdoor services by telling them, we'll help you with the permit for a tent. We'll close down the street for the entire holiday if needed. Just hold the services outside. Also, again, going back, mass testing. If that was done in the community when the infection rate was low, people would be encouraged to actually go test because if you get a negative test, you know you can start doing certain things. You can uh, resume certain daily life activities. And if you're sick, you actually stay home. But people are not getting tested. Those who are sick are out there in the street and spreading it without knowing even they are sick. So there certainly wasn't an effort on behalf of the city to actually come up with practical solutions for an important matter. You know, protests are very important in a democracy and racial justice is a very important issue, especially for the Jewish community who were persecuted in the 1930s. But religious services are also a core value, a core principle of observant members of the community. And so that put aside, you still have to separate the Orthodox community into three groups. You have one group who people are told to wear masks. They'll wear masks, practice social distancing. They will come up with their own initiatives to practice social distancing, to hold outdoor services, to hold uh, small weddings and so on. Then you have the bulk of the community who has to actually be guided through a process where they can hold their religious services, but at the same time also comply with the guidelines. If there's enough outreach, if people are aware of the situation and if community and government work together, then that could be done. You have the third group, which you alluded to, which is those protests, okay? Those people who don't necessarily believe in science, those people who actually look up and see the guidance from the President of the United States. I would direct you to the numbers, uh, exit polls in 2016, President Trump got about 70% support in the Orthodox Jewish community. Obviously, it's a generic vote. In national elections, Orthodox Jewish people vote Republican. But also since 
Trump has come onto the scene, you know, people have become more politically engaged. And so when they see the president claim it's a democratic hoax, when they see the president say, it's fine, it's okay, you can get sick. Look at me, I'm 74, I got sick, I beat it in two days. Then they say, why is the government even cracking down? Why is the government not allowing me to do um, my services when the infection rate is not even so high? What needs to be the objective is defeat this virus and understand we all have to do the utmost effort to save lives. And that was not the objective on behalf of government. And the message didn't get down to the community that we sympathize with you. We understand your struggle. We understand how important it is to hold religious services, but we also have to take some measures in such difficult times to actually deal with the matter. Jacob, thank you so much for taking the uh, time here. And one last question, if you can, to uh, dip into briefly that I've been thinking a lot about. So we've had regional upticks in the infection numbers that seem to be getting under control. We will see. Uh, But it does strike me that some of this is a little different, even within the Orthodox Jewish world inside New York City than elsewhere, and that some of that has to do with the density of city living and what that means for where people live, uh, the space they're in, and how they worship. I was hoping you could weigh in on that for a minute as a last word here, because I think some of that isn't obvious to people outside of these neighborhoods. Right. I I think that's an important way to point out how lockdowns don't necessarily always work for your advantage, because if you're sending people home, those who live in two-bedroom apartments with seven or eight kids, going back to the outbreak, if one um, family member gets sick, or the entire family will get sick. And again, and you know, if it's one member of the family just going down to the grocery, you know, you infect another person, and that person gives it over to another person, and a vulnerable person gets really sick and dies. So I think. Uh, you have to always look not only at the science, at the data, but also understand of how the community will deal with it on a universal matter, not only apply one standard to all, because you look at the month of June, July, going into August, where most of the congregations had resumed uh, services, Uh, weddings were taking place, and people were attending large gatherings, and you didn't see an uptick in cases. You only saw an uptick in cases once people got back from the summer. Some people were infected. Either they didn't know they were infected or because school started, you know, you give it over to another and then you come home, you give it over to the family. So I think that has to be taken in account when you try to impose certain restrictions on a community that is largely not only insular, not only not talking the same language, but also, again, uh, uh, I'll emphasize this because it's important for all of us, for ourselves as well, that our prime objective should not be to win an argument or to be politically correct or to actually get praise from others. It should be an objective of saving lives. And if we can do that, all options should be on the table. I will let you go after this because we are running out of time. But how were the apologies perceived? Were they perceived well? Do you think we have like a good path moving forward? Cuomo had the phone call on the 18th of October and Bill de Blasio, you were there, you reported on it, gave his apology, which is a rare thing for for our mayor, gave his apology to the community in general. Do you think that that outreach and those are going to help ease some of the disconnect between the community and the city government? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you'll poll uh, de Blasio in the Orthodox community, he'll probably be in single digits. Um, But having said that, uh, I think some people saw it as a sincere regrets, understanding that the approach he took just didn't work. Uh, It's not only about reducing the tension, it just didn't work. And I think there's an effort now on behalf of the community, you know, to isolate those loud voices, to isolate those people who engage in violence, who engage in divisive rhetoric, who call on people to defy the government's guidelines and to get both 
the government to understand our community, to get the community to be aware of how serious this situation is. And so if you pledge to reset, that's fine. But people want to see actual results. We will see in June, I think, when one of those loud voices, maybe on the ballot, I think a very interesting register of how open or not the community is to them. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for- I hope we don't get to that point. Me too. I hope we don't. <laughs> I, I hope we have a cutoff before before that gets put to the test. Um, but uh, Jacob, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back on and that, that we can have a, a, a more of an ongoing uh, conversation as you keep reporting it. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, Harry. You know, we go back, way back, <laughs> way back. Well, thank you so much, um, and we will see you soon. Take care. F A Q. Thanks again, Jacob. And shifting gears, Christina and I had a lovely conversation on Tuesday with Esther Fuchs, who's an old friend of my dad's aunt, most significantly here. The reason that another of my all-time favorite New Yorkers, Christina Greer, is, in fact, a New Yorker. Let's get right to it. And also, I am going to say, Esther was my advisor when I was at Columbia. And the reason why I attended Columbia for my PhD, because she recruited me and we had tea together. So... And that's that is the best part of the introduction. <laughs> for me, it is. I so appreciate you. Esther, thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here with you and Harry. A.K.A. Fred Jr. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got it right this time. <laughs> Esther is also the author of Mares and Money, Fiscal Policy in New York and Chicago, which seems awfully timely right now, just as I've been reading through and getting a sense of how a previous fiscal crisis played out here, given the hole we're in right now. So Esther, I wanted to invite you on the podcast because when I was thinking about Mayors of Money, obviously I read it in graduate school. I've taught it uh, when I've taught urban politics. And the book came out in 1992. And knowing, (laughs) I know we're all 25. We just miraculously look great. Um, But I was thinking about the role of cities. I was thinking about the role of mayors in trying to negotiate with state governments and the federal government. And we're about to celebrate the 30th anniversary of your book. And I think that the book couldn't be any more timely. And so can you give our listeners just a quick synopsis of Mayors and Money and sort of why you chose to write it then in that context? Wow. So the 30th anniversary of this book and um, <laughs> I know you're only have, 42, but no, you know. <laughs> right. And I thought about it and it is sort of extraordinary how the cycle of uh, fiscal policy in cities uh, repeats itself in ways that people forget. And of course, that's not surprising. We forget a lot of history, but I'm excited to talk about this with you today because There is a lot to be learned from the 1975 fiscal crisis, but there's actually more to be learned from sort of the structural characteristics that define fiscal policies in cities and why fiscal crises repeat themselves. And so briefly, this book came about in a kind of accidental way. I had initially intended to write on the Community Action Program. And and I'm bringing this up because I actually think it's especially relevant to this time because of course that came out of the Great Society. It was one of the most progressive pieces of federal legislation um, that we had that helped cities. And the idea was that communities could have resources and make decisions about their future. And of course it was in a period of significant economic decline in cities, you know, the period of deindustrialization. And so, you know, some of us who were a little more cynical at the time thought that part of what the federal government was doing was giving autonomy to cities and neighborhoods in a period when there were so few resources to actually do anything productive and and redistribute. But I was still determined thinking as many people do today and and still believing in many ways that civic engagement, political participation, community engagement especially is really important in cities and that that's the thing in politics 
that we need to focus on. And then this was in the 1970s and New York was quickly sliding into this fiscal morass that we now call the 1975 fiscal crisis. The depth of it at the time wasn't so obvious, uh, but it became clear very, very quickly as the city couldn't repay its debt and the banks called in the card. And that's important. The banks called in the card. They could have called in that card probably 15 years earlier or 15 years later had they wanted. But at that point, they decided they had enough. And by the way, that was at a point in which Moody's and all the bond rating agencies gave New York, a, I think it was a AAA rating, you know, the best rating mm-hmm. possible. So uh, interestingly, the New York Moody's just downgraded New York City bonds. They're not going to make that mistake mm-hmm. again. So I actually changed the focus of my research. And why did I do that? Because I thought. Well, it's all well and good to be interested in redistributive policies, which in the vernacular we like to call poverty policy or maybe policy that's focusing on income inequality or anti-poverty policy or wealth creation policy, whatever the language uh, you prefer. And I thought, gee, if the city's having a fiscal crisis and the economy is crashing, then there won't really be that much to redistribute. So... I decided that I needed to understand budgets and I needed to understand where the sources of city revenue were, you know, and how they determined expenditures, like what went into this process of deciding where to spend the city budget. And so that became the focus of ultimately Mayors and Money, this book. And being somewhat of uh, a stickler for details and an obsessive when I do research, I thought if this is really structural, then you can't take one point in time to look at what's going on. It won't really give you a sense of what are long-term trends and what things can easily be changed. And it certainly isn't going to give you a sense of how political institutions and politics itself really impact the budget process. So that became what I focused on. And I decided to do comparative case studies for a 50-year period. And what I determined was that both New York City and Chicago had fiscal crises during the Depression. And in fact, many cities had fiscal crises in the 30s. It is a cyclical thing and is connected to the economy, obviously, in very specific ways. But what in 1975, both cities experienced the same kind of deindustrialization and economic decline. While New York had this blow up on the fiscal side, it could not balance its budget, revenue shortfalls, couldn't pay back its debt, all the things we associate with fiscal crisis. Chicago did not. Chicago had a balanced budget. So as a political scientist, this was tailor-made for me because (laughs) the economics couldn't really explain what was going on. You know, everybody was saying at the time, oh, so much of the problem in New York was attributable initially to the economic, you know, decline of the city. And that, you know, there was a mismatch and an imbalance at that point between what revenues were coming in and, you know, the growth in city spending. So I decided uh, we need to unpack this further. And of course, again, at the time, a big mantra was, well, New York spends on redistributive uh, policies. It's because they spend so much money on poor people. That is really the, the source of the imbalance. And if they didn't do that, they could have balanced their budget. But in fact, as we know now from the data that's been collected, that really wasn't the main problem for New York. So fast forward now to where we are. And I think the paradigm that helped me understand the fiscal crisis of 1975, and that in fact triggered the fiscal crises during the depression is in play. You obviously need an economic recession to trigger a fiscal crisis because it creates the shortfall Uh, of on the revenue side. And, you know, New York City has had an enormous decline in tax revenue in the last six months 
you know, not completely anticipated, but certainly once the coronavirus set in, we should have known this would happen. And Mm -hmm. we were not prepared for it. And so that brings me to politics, which I think is the sort of most interesting part of this. And I'll put out two general observations and then, you know, let's talk, which is political explanations have really two parts. And one part is fairly obvious to people. Budgets are political documents. They represent in many ways the values and priorities of a city. But at the same time, what people don't understand and what they don't pay much attention to is the structural constraints on cities and city budgets. And this, by the way, you know, I've been like crazy about this for several years now because while I obviously support so much of the agenda of the progressive political movement that's emerged in New York, there's been such a short-sighted view and a failure to understand like where the money comes from to do redistribution and what kind of constraints on cities and where you should focus your energy for change. And I'm not going to get sidetracked with the Amazon case because that would take the entire uh, podcast. We'll have you back. We'll have, <laughs> we'll have you back. back to talk about that. But I... <laughs> It made me nuts watching what was happening because fundamentally cities do need to be places where people who pay taxes wanna live and where businesses wanna locate because fundamental to the budget is tax revenue. And why is that so important? And Chrissy will laugh because she knows what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say federalism and I'm gonna say (laughs) Dylan's rule and This is, you know, something I know that probably is a little esoteric for people, but hey, learn this word, Dylan's rule. And this was an 1868 Iowa State Supreme Court decision. And I love to say this because this was the decision that really codified that cities are legal creatures of the state. And what does that mean? Very simply is despite home rule and all this stuff that we all love, States give cities legal authority. States constrain what cities can do in terms of how they raise money and how they spend money. So New York is saddled with a lot of fixed costs Mm -hmm. that other cities don't have that come both from the federal government and the state government, especially by the way around Medicaid and social services, where we still pay a part of it. Some of this was changed in the 75 fiscal crisis, but at the time, I actually said not enough, not enough. I mean, we, uh, you know, the city university was paid for by the city at the time. Mm -hmm. We contributed more to the MTA, for example. So these are the kinds of structural constraints that people don't understand. When unions go into collective bargaining uh, agreements, that's not the only place they get benefits. They go up to the state legislature. There are rules that are created at the state level that ha- are imposed on the city, most of which have fiscal implications. I mean, the ones that popped up recently that everybody remembers were around the speed cameras, around public schools. People thought, like, why is New York going to the state, you know, to right. get permission to put speed cameras in place? Well, you know, because they have to, because it's it's legally mandated. Well, there is a ton of those legal mandates that actually create fixed costs for the city in their budget. So this these two pieces, interest group politics, as well as the structural constraints that come from state-city relations, are something that need to be understood in the context of budget politics. I did a <laughs> monologue there. <laughs> yeah. I lo- it's Shakespearean. I love it. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm back sort of, it's 2001 all over again. And I'm like in a seminar, just like, I love oh, this woman. <laughs> oh, you make me so happy. Every time I hear you on the radio or I read what you write, I, I'm so happy. I just have to say that. I'm sorry, Harry. I would like to say that about you too, but you know, it's not the same. It's good, but it's not the same. <laughs> now, Chr- Chrissy is a number one New Yorker and you, you brought her here. <laughs> To New York. So 
back to New York, back to New York. It's two Queens girls. And, and Esther was like, I drink tea. Do you drink tea? And at the time, I only drank tea, not coffee. And I was like, I do. And we sat there and we talked about politics and cities. And I lived in Illinois and El- Esther went to grad school in Chicago. And so I was like, this woman is meant for me. And then I came to Columbia and then Bloomberg snatched you up. But you never left me alone. I would go to no. City Hall. We'd have tea and uh, yik yak about the craziness that is. Brandy. And then I came back for your amazing dissertation. So yes. I got to be on your committee <laughs> after all. <laughs> and we okay. did parties and elections with uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre. Yep. That's where I met Corinne in 2001. But September 12th is when we talked. (laughs) (laughs) September 11th happened and September 12th we had class and I said something that would probably get me thrown into Guantanamo Bay these days. And after after class, she was like, hey, I think we should be friends. (laughs) (laughs) Professor, or or everyone's a professor. Professor I was about to say, Harry, which one? (laughs) (laughs) So you you brought up the MTA and CUNY. I got to ask, and I'm going to tie Bloomberg in with this too. So the MTA money, this is the state. CUNY's funding is largely the state. When Mike Bloomberg was the mayor, Mike Bloomberg had some ability to keep the state and Andrew Cuomo at bay, some ability because he lobbied aggressively there because he gave money directly to lawmakers in certain instances, you know, that New York was the only big state to have the legislature pass gay marriage, for instance, and not courts do that was largely Mike bribing individual lawmakers. And I do mean bribing. So that that was for the public good, and that worked wonderfully. De Blasio has had none of that power. Uh, Cuomo has become stronger and stronger in the state in relation to the city. Cuomo has a huge budget hole of his own right now. And so these services that people in New York associate very strongly with the city, like the City University of New York, like the trains, there's this huge gap. And my concern is whoever the next mayor ends up being, the Cuomo who's accumulated all of this strength as the state and the city got richer, is likely to end up with even more strength as uh, both of them are for the time being impoverished. And there are these mechanisms like the Fiscal Control Board that get started in the 70s that he can use to effectively dictate policy for the city, even though, you know, half the people elected him aren't here. So that that's my big thought. I, I just love to hear your thoughts on all that. It's so interesting what you're saying. And that, let me see if I can unpack a couple of pieces of that. So after 75, when the state took over some of the costs, as you point out, that did create relief. But of course, the city was put into financial control. And um, I think that period of financial control is really important for us now. Uh, I chaired a Charter Revision Commission whose purpose was to finally eliminate the Financial Control Board because it was supposed to sunset. And it turns out that a lot of people did not want it to sunset. And I'm not re- I really agree with you that the city should have autonomy over its budget and that in many ways there's way too much control by the state right now in terms of dictating to the city on the policy side. And the question of whether they provide enough resources to us is pretty clear given what New York contributes to the state budget and given what it gets back you know, we're still the engine of the state's economy and provide the greatest amount of tax revenue to the state budget. However, what's what's interesting now, and this is something that I think will be fairly controversial, uh, I am really worried because the way de Blasio has been handling the budget, I mean, it's not just fiscally irresponsible. It's really going to set up the next mayor for an extremely difficult time. I mean, we have a budget in New York, $89.3 billion. That was an increase of over 20% from the last year of the Bloomberg budget. So I was watching this budget go up and I think, you know, we should definitely spend when the economy is growing and all of that. But there was no question that it was fiscally unsustainable to spend Mm -hmm. at that rate. 
And that everybody knows that in the second reelection campaign for um, de Blasio, no one ran against him in the primary, basically. And the reason they didn't was because he locked up union support before the primary. And so the sort of mainstream Democrats were too nervous because we have low turnout in New York Democratic primaries. And if you have a predictable vote from anybody, you're, you know, you're already ahead of the curve. And so an enormous amount of money was spent in the budget in a way that is now going to be very difficult to cut in a responsible way as the economy declines. You have to be able to reduce expenditures and headcount. So the other thing he did, which is kind of mind reeling, is he grew the headcount in the city from 297,300 in you know, fiscal 2014, currently almost 327,000. This is over almost a 12% increase in headcount. And the only thing that reduces the budget quickly is reducing headcount. I mean, for my money, if he would just reduce headcount to the place in which he started, we would all be better off fiscally because, you know, I'll just ask the old adage from presidential campaigns, are you better off now than you were seven years ago? And most of us, including homeless people and low-income people in this city, would say no. Um, You know, there's a dramatic deterioration in quality of life service delivery, which has been part of his approach to cut back on basic services. So, you know, the lesson to me from 75 is you do not want to make the cuts to basic services that the city was forced to make by the financial control board. See, I find the the rescue of New York in 75 came with a lot of strings attached that I believe made the recovery a lot longer and a lot more painful for a lot of people. You know, the three big interest groups at the table were the unions, obviously, and the real estate interest because they wanted a prepayment of property taxes. And of course, the banks, because they held the debt. And in 75, it was local banks who held the debt, which is why, you know, Felix Rowden was such an important figure. Victor Gottbaum, Lou Rudin, these were the, in fact, when we talk about the fiscal crisis in 75, we talk about these three men, frankly, who somehow came together to help the city bail out. And of course, the governor who really sort of knocked heads together Governor Carey to produce the bailout. But when you look at the bailout and the impact it had on the city, if anybody lived in New York in the seven, late 70s and early 80s, what they remember is a city falling apart. Uh, I don't know. The parks were turned into dust bulbs. Nothing worked. The crime rate was up. The schools declined. Services are not just for wealthy people or middle-class people. Basic services are for poor people too. This is what I find really infuriating. You know, we talk about welfare as the only service that poor people might care about. Well, poor people need good schools and they need clean neighborhoods and they need to feel safe on their streets. I mean, we have to figure out how to do this in a way that obviously works for these neighborhoods, for all neighborhoods. But the idea that these services are are services targeted toward the business community and the wealthy is ridiculous. And so in 75, we created a situation, I believe, that made it much more difficult for the city to reemerge and and begin its economic growth again. Because in order to solve a fiscal crisis, you have to reclaim the economy. And everybody has to contribute to the cutbacks. So My view of that period is not enough was really changed on the structural constraint side. And within the interest groups, I I don't really uh, think that you can look at that period and say, oh, every decision was made in the interest of the broader city. The union negotiations protected, you know, the oldest and longest serving members. It was 
last in, first out. Right. And so, you know, you didn't get cuts that reflected any kind of, you know, managerial approach or efficiency approach, which I believe is kind of overrated in terms of how much money you could save from efficiency. In 75, there was a book, you know, there was a mantra, doing more with less. Well, guess what? You do less with less. You do not do more with less, you know. So while we can overspend in the sense that we are not balancing our budget, um, we have tons of things to spend on that we don't spend on. So we do not have too much money in the city uh, being spent on services. We might be able to spend it better and a little bit more efficiently, but the issue somehow that we spend too much money in general is ridiculous. The real right. issue is you have to stay within your budget uh, constraints, which is to say you ha it has to reflect the revenues coming in. And I think that the city suffered tremendously from the approach to balancing the budget that was imposed upon it by the financial control board. The cuts to basic services really uh, caused a dramatic decline in the quality of life in the city and also even discouraged businesses from opening up in neighborhoods. It was difficult. And of course, people continued to leave the city and population growth is for better or for right. worse an indicator of economic growth also. So uh, I don't want to see a repeat of the 75 bailout when the banks, by the way, got every nickel on their debt. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go bankrupt, you end up in court and you have to wait online with everybody else. And in those negotiations, and this is the political piece that I know Chrissy loves that we've talked about many times, the interest group politics in New York was not upended. The same people who had power before the fiscal crisis had power during the fiscal mm -hmm. crisis. By the way, bankruptcy, I know, you know, people say would have been bad, but it would have upended the political mm -hmm. power relationships. People would not have been able to make the deals they made to protect the interests that they decided were worth protecting, which were the municipal employees who were most mm -hmm. senior the banks who held the debt, getting every nickel on the dollar. And, you know, within that context, probably the only community that looks like they actually gave something was Lou Rudin when he prepaid his taxes. Right. So Esther, one, you have to promise me that you'll come back because I think as we get closer to the 2021 mayor's race and ranked choice voting and the election is in the, the primary is in June as opposed to September, I really want to get your thoughts on so the managerial candidates versus the lifelong politicians. So that's a that's a totally different episode. Uh, we need to talk about the federal government because you start your book with Ford saying to New York City, drop dead. So we have to get back to that. So basically, this is part one of an episode with Dr. Esther Fuchs. But the last question I want to ask is, you know, most people know you from your work or associate you with your work with Michael Bloomberg, but you also have a close connection to the Dinkins administration. You are the faculty member who brought uh, mayor Dinkins, who I always joke, is like my favorite mayor. So when I'm with Michael Nutter in spaces with <laughs> Mayor Dinkins, I always say my favorite mayor and then mayor too. Um, but you brought him to Columbia. He's been a great resource to students uh, over the generations. So I wanted you to just talk about, you know, working for two different mayors in two very different time periods. And then also if you wanted to share any reflections on uh, the first Black First Lady of New York City, uh, Mrs. Joyce Dinkins, who recently just passed away. Oh, boy. Well, I. Oh, so that's a that's a difficult question in a way. Um, I'm a big fan of both Mayor Bloomberg and Mayor Dinkins, and that was considered to be not possible at the time. And I laugh. I have to tell this story for for Harry the former park commissioner, Henry Stern, who was, uh, uh, may he rest in peace. Stark he, uh, that's right. Who was a character and an unusual person in New York City politics. Uh, he was, you know, one of the people commenting on politics at the time. And when I started working for Mayor Bloomberg on his campaign, he said, how can you 
hire her. She's a radical leftist. Somebody hear that now, AOC and all the other people who think, you know, hey, she worked for Bloomberg. Who is she? She's a radical leftist. How can you bring a radical leftist to city government? She'll destroy everything. And of course, uh, Fred and I, Harry's dad, had our own disagreements about all of this as well. He was not a Bloomberg fan, (laughs) to say the least. And I obviously was a big David Dinkins fan and supporter and somebody who believed his legacy wasn't sufficiently appreciated. I think it is more and more now um, as people take second and third looks at it. And, you know, I don't think these two things were incompatible in any way at all. As it turns out, David Dinkins' administration was cut short. He only had one term, and that, I think, was unfortunate. I think a lot of things that he had on the docket uh, would have proved to be, you know, extremely important for the city at the time. And, you know, it didn't come to be. But, of course, you know, the one thing I will point out in the brief time that we have is that Mayor Dinkins did go to the state legislature and was able to pass safe streets, safe cities. And this is one of the most important pieces of legislation for the city of New York, because thus began the decline in New York City's crime rate. So whatever Rudy Giuliani did, fine. And, you know, I'll give him credit for those things that he did, but not to acknowledge that the approach that Dinkins took at the end of his administration, the last two years, which showed crime coming down wasn't significant, is ridiculous. And of course, he also put money into after-school youth programs at the same time in which he increased the police department. He used the money to increase the police department. And I point that out because he could get things from the state legislature in a way that most mayors can't. De Blasio, you know, pretty much can't get anything. And that was significant. And he also signed the deal that began the turnaround in Times Square, bringing Disney to Times Square. And, you know, people can talk. Don't forget about the U.S. Open, that money that comes in. If more money comes into the U.S. Open than every other sport combined in New York City. So from an economic development point of view, Dinkins understood all of this. It was very important. Uh, He knew that the city needed to needed to raise revenue if he was going to do any kind of progressive policy. And he did those things, among many others, not to mention bringing back the libraries to six days a week. I could go on and on. We were still recovering from the devastating impacts of the 75 fiscal crisis, where, by the way, one of those consequences from that great deal that the Financial Control Board imposed was cut the guts out of the city budget and really caused an enormous decline in quality of life that, you know, we're still recovering from in many, in in some cases. And Mayor Dinkins, of course, did the most important thing with his gorgeous mosaic, which is bring people together in politics. That seems like, you know, a wistful past memory that anybody can think about running for elective office in a way that doesn't divide people but that brings people together. By the way, Bill de Blasio ran on a divisive platform, the tale of two cities. And, you know, you can talk progressive however you want, but he ran and divided the city. He continues to divide the city instead of making us understand that we're all in this together and that there's a common agenda. And and this is particularly important. And David Dinkins understood this and he did it across class lines, across race lines, across religious lines. I mean, he was and is an extraordinary person. And I have to say, can I say a little story? Do we have a little time, a personal (laughs) story about how he came, when he came uh, to Columbia? And we were, you know, organizing some of what he would teach and uh, around an institute I was running, work he was going to do. And he invited me to his apartment. He said he was going to make silver pancakes. And I thought, this is really great. Now, he knew that I kept kosher. And I didn't, you know, mention anything about what I needed or anything like that. And I got there and Joyce answered the door, Mrs. Dinkins, one of the most gracious, beautiful, extraordinarily generous women. 
really beloved, really, you know, he and she together was the issue of caring about children. This is what they truly, truly cared about and what they have continued, they continued to support after the mayoralty. Anyway, I got to the door and she said, oh, David went down to do a little errand. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what is he doing? Where is he going? What did he buy? And he came back and he had paper plates and plastic forks and and paper cups. And I would have been fine with whatever he had put out as long as, you know, was from my point of view, kosher. But he wanted it to be just right. And he wanted me to be comfortable and feel like I could, you know, eat with him and, you know, we could have this meeting together. And he made the pancakes himself. <laughs> and, and he, you know, served me on the paper plate and the plastic and put the tea in the paper cup. And, you know, I remember Joyce smiling and just saying, you know, that's, that's, that's what he does. That's what he's going to do. You're mm-hmm. his friend. And I, 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 you know, no one's ever done that for me. Yeah, I can't even think of a person, you know, the level of care that that re- required and thinking to me was just uh, so extraordinary. And of course, she joined him in his adventure in public service and stood by his side and did it, as I said, with, the, with grace and dignity And of course, her own values that she brought to his administration and to all the work they did together afterwards. She, she, you know, she will be very missed. I I know it's very hard. They were together a very, very long time, as everybody knows. Yeah. Um, And I think, uh, you know, it's difficult for him, but he, you know, he, he too has such dignity and grace and, and, um, if you know, if you've heard him speak, whenever he begins, began, he would talk about his bride. And so, you know, that says the whole story about the, the love affair of their life. Um, something to emulate, something to, they were very lucky to have it together. And uh, something for the whole city to cherish, I think. So... I just feel so lucky to uh, be in his orbit, to have been able to work closely with him at Columbia. I did not serve in his administration, although some people think I did, but um, I did support him in his campaign for mayor. And um, I think that we're lucky when New York gets the mayor they deserve. I would say, you know, talking about Michael Bloomberg, New York was very lucky to have Michael Bloomberg as mayor. Uh, and Bill de Blasio was the luckiest guy in the world until, until COVID, because he got to spend all the money that Bloomberg's economic development juggernaut created without thinking about the fiscal situation of the city, without even understanding that, you know, economic growth goes up and it comes down and that you have to manage your budget in a way that really reflects this idea that you're not going to have all this money for the entire term. And I think, you know, Bloomberg during the 2008 recession, he managed to cut back municipal employees by a significant amount, as well as cut the budget. And what we've seen over the last seven years is just a constant growth in the city budget and in the in city spending in a way that reflects a failure to understand the constraints on cities, a failure to understand that you need to make sure that you're not just spending to support the political interests and demands of the people who support you, but you're thinking about it from the perspective of the entire city. That's a big failure of de Blasio's. And I would say that Bloomberg put into place opportunities for economic growth that we still benefit from right now. He's the only mayor, by the way, in our modern time that left the city's budget in good shape with a surplus and growing. Every mayor, because of politics, tends to spend down to the penny. Um, And that's, you know, part of this 
political dynamic that I was talking about. You know, it's much easier to spend than it is to cut. You make a lot more friends spending. So I am I am very concerned now because what we have in place is going to be an albatross on the next mayor if we if we don't at least try and reduce headcount and bring down spending at this point. And uh, I don't see this mayor opening up union contracts. I don't see him really figuring out uh, how to get the real estate community on board. Uh, the partnership sent out an open letter, we're ready to help. And it's all he did was say to them, go to Washington and get us money. I mean, you know, we can't chew gum and walk at the same time. The business community needs to step up and help. And Washington should put in the money, but you know, we're not brain dead. Trump is not putting money into New York City. So that isn't that's a closed avenue right now. Professor, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking all this time. And I hope we're gonna have you back actually after we get through this election in November and as the mayoral race heats up here to uh to keep talking about all this. There, there, there's a lot to dig into and, and really thank you. This has been a pleasure. Oh, so much. And I yeah, I filibustered, I guess. I didn't listen give you a chance to ask enough questions. It doesn't but like I'm basically back. It's 2001. I'm in a seminar. I'm just I'm, Harry's texting me like, you're smiling. You're smiling. <laughs> I'm smiling too, can't you see? FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to Jacob Kornblue, a Jewish insider, and Esther Fuchs at Columbia University. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask, get a flu shot, and we'll talk to you next week.